I had an old e-reader I bought in 2011, so it was old, and I upgraded and gave one of my kids the old e-reader, and eventually they gave it back to me because the battery started to fail on it, and I thought, oh, I'm going to keep this thing out from the landfill. I'll just replace the battery. So I watched all the YouTubes, became an expert on this, and I go online to shop for the battery, and I see one battery for this old e-reader that I could get, one battery, $38. And, and printed on the battery is the voltage and the amps and everything, and that's the battery for it. But I notice also a battery for sale, same size, has the same printing on it, same volts, same uh, amperage. I can't pronounce the name of the company, but it's $18 instead of $38. So immediately I think to myself, mm-hmm, I'm going to save a little money. Yeah, don't try to save money. It doesn't work. Even though that battery had 5,000 five-star ratings, the $18 battery, I got it, I installed it, have you done this, everything, it didn't work. I don't know if it was a counterfeit battery. Uh, it did come from East Asia, but it sure didn't work. It sure didn't work. And the reality is, especially in the buckle of the Bible Belt, that many people have faith. Many people will claim to be Christians, but the reality is they probably need to understand that they are lost before they can be saved. What do I mean by that? There's lots of people who would say, just as, as you would admit, oh, I'm a cowboy fan, they would say, I'm a Christian. This is a good, positive thing, so I'm a Christian. And many people would claim that. Many people will give intellectual assent to features of the gospel, but they won't have any life transformation transformation. They won't have any difference in what they do based on what they believe. And what James is doing here is he is emphasizing that true saving faith always has not just intellectual assent, not just a claim such as I believe, but the actions which go with the beliefs. In other words, James makes the case here that true saving faith flows out into the behavior, the attitude, and the actions of God's people. The two are brought together here in a beautiful way. Faith saves and works accompanies that saving faith, and James gets specific uh, with us here in several important ways. And we're going to start in verse 14 with saving faith. Saving faith. And James is going to ask the same question twice. He asks it there in verse 14, and then again in verse 16, what good is it? And the implication here is that it isn't any good. That if you can't put faith and works together, then it is not any good that the faith is not genuine or real. So he asks in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith 
but does not have works. People can say whatever they want to say, and what James is calling us to is the authentication of this faith that only comes from the deeds, the works that accompany that faith. Can that faith save him? James asks at the end of verse 14. So a link is established here between faith and works, namely, Faith alone saves. Obviously, our church, being Presbyterian, is in the stream of the Reformation faith, the rediscovery of biblical truth that happened at that time that reminds people that faith alone, it's the instrument for salvation. Belief alone saves. And what James gets at here is that belief is never alone. It is always accompanied by works which flow from that transformation that happens in our heart and moves out towards our hands and our feet. So to speak of saving faith here, as James does, can that faith save him, implies that we need saving, that we are in spiritual peril. And so it's important to understand as a feature of true Christianity and genuine faith that we believe we are in need of saving. This is a core tenet of the gospel message and speaks to the necessity of both the incarnation and the atonement of Jesus Christ. If we deny that we are in spiritual peril, and what I'm talking about here is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What has happened in modern evangelical Christianity, and we use that term Christianity in quotes, is the very nature of people, we could call that our anthropology, the beliefs that we have about the nature of people. We have raised up people. We have said, oh, people aren't that bad. They're not really that sinful, and we've raised them up. And what have we done with a holy God who is totally other and separate from sinners? We brought him down. And this is an attempt, and I've talked about this several times previously, it's an attempt to bridge the gap by bringing God's holiness down and lifting our righteousness up to bridge the gap between the two. But it, it, it is an infinite gulf, it, a gap that cannot be bridged no matter how hard we work and no matter the measure of our self-righteousness. We can never reconcile us to God. That would end in despair except for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And so it is through Christ that we are rescued, that we are reconciled as sinners to a holy God, and we are no longer at enmity from Him. But this stems from this belief of a saving faith. And we forget in our modern times that we are in spiritual peril apart from the gracious and merciful activity of God and that this is the hallmark of Christianity. In July of 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached what we could say is probably the most famous sermon 
in the English language, sinners in the hand of an angry God. He chose as his text, Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time. That was his text. And it's very much, I encourage you, if you haven't read it, it's very much uh, into the Puritan style. The Puritans were so much more educated than we are. They took a small text and they could explode it out and follow the literary themes of that text. And of course, you know the result of sinners in the hand of an angry God. Uh, you know the result, spiritual awakening broke out in this country. And I'm going to read to you a paragraph from this sermon that Jonathan Edwards wrote, delivered in 1741, and it sounds like it comes from outer space in comparison to modern evangelicalism. Okay, you ready for this? Jonathan Edwards. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Utilization of hell as a place of eternal torment in the same paragraph twice. That doesn't happen in modern Christianity. And of course, the response, people falling over in repentance, genuine repentance, in a reaction to the challenge of a holy God and sinners like us. How far we have traveled from 1741. That we can read those words and those who are rebels against God are not intimidated and do not react. How we have domesticated God, brought him down, and lifted ourselves up. But the hallmark of Christianity is this saving faith, this understanding that it is only by God's grace and mercy that he keeps us every moment from plunging into hell. It is through, and I just read you a paragraph there, uh, obviously there's a exposition of God's love and His grace and His mercy and an invitation to embrace that in that sermon. But the key here is you cannot have true faith if you don't believe you've been saved from anything. In a Christianity, and maybe we could call this American Christianity, cultural Christianity, Bible Belt Christianity, if you don't have a holy God and sinners, if you don't have a place of eternal torment, then you're not really saved from anything and the gospel really isn't 
good. The gospel is only good news if we understand something of what we've been rescued from and what we have been rescued to. In terms of how the gospel addresses not only our sin, but our misery and brings us into relationship with a God who loves us and has mercy on us. This is saving faith, the genuine article, the real deal. And so James brings that out, reminding us that if we diminish God's holiness by modifying his commands, or if we falsely increase our own righteousness, this is not Christianity. This is not a saving faith. Then James moves on from that saving faith to verses 15 and 16, where he speaks here, he writes here, of acting in faith, acting in faith and the connection between faith and works. And he draws out a scenario here, and you can kind of imagine this in church for a moment. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, what good is it to have a faith that is not responsive to the needs of those who come in to a church like this one? Notice here, verse 15, if a brother or sister. So this is someone who probably shares the faith. I think that's a good uh, implication there. And notice here, verse 15, they're poorly clothed. And really what's being spoken, it's, it's different than the, um, when we covered the sin of partiality there in chapter 2, verse 2, where the person comes in with shabby clothing, dirty clothing. This is a person who doesn't have enough clothing, and they're lacking in daily food. And what's being communicated to us here is the need is obvious. The need is obvious. And yet, what is the person's response? Go in peace, be warmed and filled. They do not give them, and notice here at the end of verse 16, it's the things needed for the body. These are the fundamental, most basic human needs. Those are rejected. The things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, if you have a faith... And you say you're a Christian, and you are unresponsive to the glaring need around you, you might have to explore whether your faith is genuine or not. James gets very specific here with this scenario, and the problem here is it's similar to that problem of partiality. It is a failure to grasp how God has dealt with us. Think about it for a moment. We come in, and God sees us, and we are the ones in the shabby clothing. We are the ones who are poorly clothed. We are the ones who lack our daily bread. And I'm speaking spiritually here. We may be well-fed, but we are lacking spiritually. And does God look at us? in our spiritual need, and say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. No. 
No, he sent Christ for us as a response. How thankful we are that God is not like the experts in our culture who like to criticize, analyze, and scrutinize everything or commiserate. How thankful we are we have a God who launched a rescue mission. He did something. And that's the call for us here. If we have a genuine faith that we would act on that faith, understanding that this is what God has done for us. And James is doing something subtle here, but it's very serious. He is taking a spiritual diagnostic. He is saying, I know the nature of your faith by your disposition towards the poor. And it reminds us that Christ was one of the poor too. And so the significant theological point is based on this fact that James is calling us to respond as the gospel transforms our life in the way our life has been transformed by the mercy and generosity of God. There's a correlation, in other words, how you treat the poor, how you understand your own spiritual poverty. And James brings that out. We are spiritually poor without resources to save ourselves. And when we respond wrongly to those physical needs, how we treat the poor is a reflection of our understanding of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. And I preach to myself here. I mean, I am the chief cynic, right? Maybe you are too. Maybe you see sidewalks full of homeless people and your first response, sometimes mine, well, if people would just work hard like I have, they could make something of themselves. And maybe we look with a judgmental eye on what has befallen other people rather than looking with compassion. Maybe some of us look with cynicism on the poor, and our first reaction is that cynicism. And the call here is for us to demonstrate our faith and our belief by how we treat the poor and interact with those who are poor. Now, before I get to the application, let's talk poverty for a minute, because we live in a place that exists in terms of the fleeing of poverty. That's what a suburb is. A suburb is created by those who want to get away from poverty and seek security. And Matthew Desmond has written a book. It's a, it's a hard-hitting book called Poverty by America. That's the name of his book, Matthew Desmond. And he has a lot to say about poverty. He's a poverty researcher. And he writes this, Poverty isn't a line. It's a tight knot of social maladies. It's connected to every social problem we care about, crime, health, education, housing, and its persistence in American life means that millions of families are denied safety and security and dignity in one of the richest nations in the history of the world. And he explores, really, poverty. And, and we have to understand, not only is poverty a tight knot of social maladies, 
we have to understand there's a spiritual side to poverty as well. And there's spiritual dynamics. And unfortunately, Matthew Desmond doesn't explore that in the book. But you've got to be willing to look at the spiritual side of life and what's going on and ministering to people, not just physically, but also spiritually. And he challenges in that book, Poverty by America, he challenges us this way. He, he writes, has there ever been another time in the full sweep of human history when so many people had so much and yet felt so deprived and anxious? Isn't that true? You look around you today, people are so anxious. You know, we have so much and yet we are feeling deprived and anxious. So how do you how do you deal with this? I mean, if you are really believing in Jesus Christ, if you have true saving faith, what's our response to the poor? I've got four here I want to outline for you as we think about relating to the poor in a way that reflects the genuineness of our faith. First one, and this is for me especially, is to have compassion instead of cynicism. Is that you and I would know there's a tight knot of social and spiritual maladies at work, sometimes in the lives of those who are poor, and we are called to have compassion instead of cynicism for them. And this gets back up into uh, chapter 2, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And to remember that God has had mercy on us. So that's the challenge. Can our first response be compassion instead of judgment or cynicism. Second way to apply is to participate, is to participate. And participating helps us with our apathy instead of turning the other direction, instead of going into cynicism, participation helps us uh, become part of the solution instead of just analyzing the problem. And there's lots of ways you can participate in uh, poverty alleviation. Uh, one is, as you leave today, you can grab one of these baby bottles and you can fill that up with loose change or a check for the Hill Country Preg Pregnancy Care Center. Uh, you and I know, oh, do I ever, raising kids, it's expensive. And so when families are faced in crisis and they go to the Hill Country Pregnancy Care Center, your donation helps alleviate uh, some of the needs that are there and helps people uh, that way. So participation instead of apathy. Another way you can participate is if you give to Trinity financially, we have a deacon fund, and the deacon fund is used for the poor and those who have financial needs. We put the priority on those who have financial needs in our congregation, and you notice here that's consistent with what James writes there in verse 15, if a brother or sister. So we use that to help people uh, both inside and outside the church who have financial needs. And our deacons have been busy. Pray for our deacons because they have been helping out people in our community. Uh, there's people in our community who have fallen behind on their rent fallen behind on their bills, and they get referred to us, and our deacons go out, meet with them, and they are discerning, you know, is this a real need? Is this a situation we could help with, or is it just kind of per perpetuating the cycle? And so they need to discern that, and they do a great job with that, 
So if you support the finances, if you give to Trinity, you're supporting, uh, helping the poor. Third way is you can do something, and that would be every once a month, we as a church participate on Friday nights in distributing food boxes at the Hill Country Daily Bread, and you can do that. And the next time to do that is February 9th, and it's for two hours. And if you need any more info about that, you can find it on our website. But it's a way you can participate uh, and help. So that's ways you can participate. So compassion, not cynicism, participation. Third one is perspective. And this is important in a place like Bernie where many people are very successful and doing well. And that's to impart some perspective to your children. As, as you raise your kids, it's important that they understand uh, how blessed they are. And, uh, for example, if you p- have to pay the Bernie tax, you know what that is? That's like when you get a flat tire. You pay the Bernie tax because Bernie's growing and those nails have ways of finding, uh, finding our tires. So if you go to pay the Bernie tax, what do you tell your kid? You say, you know, hey, not everybody has 200 bucks laying around to buy a new tire. You make sure to have that set aside in your savings account so that if you have this, if you have to go pay the Bernie tax, you have the money for that because that's how people get into financial trouble. And you can kind of use that as a moment to explain to them, hey, not everybody is like us. There are people who struggle and have problems, and to teach your children that. And I think the last application, compassion, participation, perspective, uh, the last application here is you notice something uh, that James is encouraging us towards, and it's in verse 16, without giving them the things needed for the body. The measurement in these verses of an authentic faith is liberality, is generosity, giving. And we need to participate in giving. And remember, generosity is more than just financial. Sometimes generosity is just giving your time to people, being available to people, standing in there in that conversation instead of, you know, when is this going to wrap up? Listening to that story being generous with your time, being generous with your love towards others, being generous with your forgiveness and extending that. And so that's what I mean here by having a liberal faith. You notice the sermon title. It's a little bit, I like a clickbait sermon title. But it's being liberal in the best sense of the word, which is generous. There's a liberality. This faith drives us to express itself in a generosity towards others because we understand that God has been generous to us. We understand He's been generous to us. He has blessed us. He has shown us mercy. How can we not pass that generosity on to others, having a giving faith. That's what I mean by a liberal faith, liberal in the best sense, generous faith that gives to others. 
And so those are some practical ways you can think through to interact with the poor and make space in your life for those who are struggling with finances and especially those who are spiritually poor like us. So saving faith, acting in faith, and the last point here is a dead faith. Look in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James here is not contradicting sola fide, that Reformation principle of faith alone. He's not contradicting that. Faith alone saves, but that faith is never alone. It always has these works that are working themselves out and expressing them. An active, living, vibrant faith, not a bald uh, intellectual assent to the historical facts of the gospel, but a demonstrable faith that acts in ways that blesses others, and especially those who are in need. This authentic faith comes out in a great, generous love that we have for all people, all types of people, as we reflect how God has first treated us. Let's pray together. Lord, we do indeed ask that you would give us... uh, wonderful perspective about how you have treated us in Christ through the gospel and the generosity that you have shown us and the compassion and the mercy that you have shown sinners like us. And we pray that by having that view, by having that knowledge that we together as your people would rightly reflect that everywhere we go. Help us with our cynicism. Help us with our self-centeredness. Help us with our busy schedules and maybe our selfishness in terms of not being willing to extend ourselves. That we would live out this wonderful living faith that we have in Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.